so this is the brewing episode probably around 86 or 87 uh, we'll nail it down a little later but uh, i have quite a queue right now but i really want to um start to measure sort of the success and failure of what i was trying to do this year which was really talk about how like if there is an anarchism of 2018 what is it and so i'm going to talk uh what name do you want to go by during this conversation? Uh, not sure. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll keep it nebulous. But um, yeah. Um, but I basically have a person who I uh, I look forward to hearing their thoughts on my initial sort of tentative um, uh, statement that I came up with earlier this year, and this has really been the project of 2018 is what is anarchism in 2018 and i guess what are your initial thoughts um i think uh, i mean what you've got to say about it was very interesting and uh, where i'm coming from in terms of what anarchism is 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 very similar to to where you're coming from um i think anarchism is 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 in a way in crisis at the moment because the anarchism we have today is as, as you said the anarchism of 1968 um, I think in many ways, the anarchism of 1968, I mean, the anarchism of 1936 was really a rebellion against early capitalism or, or uh, capitalism as it had been in the 19th century, which was still dying at that point. Yeah, we're uh, in capitalism as modernism. Yeah. Um, 68 was really a revolt against the Fordist phase of capitalism, which was to go into a major crisis in, in 1973. Yeah. And a lot of the strands in that, whether it's critique of modern reason, uh, whether it's the attack on the systems of discrimination that was built into Fordism, whether it's the um, the refusal of work, um, rejection of consumerism, things like this, it was very much a revolt against Fordism. We've had this other recomposition now of of what's what was sort of initially neoliberalism and seems to be evolving towards a type of cybernetic capitalism. Um, can you, and can really, you tell me, we need... when, when you refer to '73, what does that mean yep. in the in the European or larger European context? '73 uh, is the uh, the year that there was a big um, uh, financial crisis. Um, the U.S. was forced to unpeg the dollar from gold, right? Um, uh, and it was considered the end of the Bretton Woods system, which had been built up after World War II, which had stabilized the global economy. And, and really, particular... the end. Was there a particular strike or something that rep that happened in '73 that represents this? No, there'd been the uh, the oil um, okay the oil blockades by the Arab countries yep. um, after the uh, Yom Kippur War. Um, that seems to be what triggered the crisis, but it seems to be a sort of five-year delayed effect of '68, and then all the stuff that's been going on since '68, and the revolts were going on all over the world in that period, uh, anti-colonial revolts. Um, following year '74, Portugal was forced to pull out of the the last European colonies, really, um, or the last large European colonies. '77, uh, we see the autonomist spring, the um, um, the, the revolts in Bologna and other cities in Italy. Mm -hmm. So this is really the period at the height of sort of second wave anarchism and of new left and, and uh, sort of 60s, 70s wave movements. Um, but with us no longer being in this kind of Fordist period, 
in some ways the movements we need now are different because we're we're up against something different and some of the tendencies that are very effective against Fordism are also not necessarily that effective against this regime of cybernetic power. And I think that's why we're having difficulties finding an anarchism that works now. Um, I think the difficulty we have with anarchism, I think you're quite right uh, to talk about anarchism as being a kind of yearning for authentic life and that that pits us against kind of both markets and state monopoly on violence. Mm -hmm. uh, and it has to do with sort of setting your own values. It has to do with living by your desires. And this is obviously something that kind of pits someone who is living by that politics, whatever era they're in, uh, against uh, powerful dominant systems that basically don't want people living by their desires. They want people living by, uh, in terms of compliance with dominant systems of control, right? Uh, now, there's a whole discussion in James Scott about uh, charisma and events and uh, that I think is kind of relevant here. Basically, if you've got a stable system of, of domination that is working at a particular point, um, the system has imposed or has negotiated on even terms a public transcript, a dominant view of society, which basically says everything's okay, the regime is just, right? Now... A lot of people may know better than that. They may be articulating that in, in hidden transcripts. But breaking the public transcript in a, a pacified period where the dominant group is very strong is inclined to bring on vicious repression. If you think of a situation like a slave standing up to a master or somebody in an absolute monarchy telling the king that they're, they're, they're not justified in ruling or somebody being an atheist in the Middle Ages – this is something that can lead to sort of severe repression, uh, being killed, being jailed for a long time, etc. Um, so there actually, is a tendency. Actually, let, let, yep. I'm going to throw in sidebars just so you don't rant for uh, too long at, at the same okay. time. Have you happened to read the book Anti-Nietzsche? I haven't, no. It's, it's interesting because it sort of, it talks about this exact uh, sort of question about like how does one revolt or or how does one stay the outsider when the when the when the inside you know keeps on growing into the terrain of the outsider anyways i i recommend checking it out if for no other reason but because of how critical you'll be of it yeah okay thank you um what i was going to say is basically the one exception that scott makes is when you have insurrectionary moments when you have mass uprisings or when you have peasant revolts suddenly the the hidden transcript, the thing people's the things people are saying in private bursts out and now can be said without so much risk. Now, the thing about 1936 and 1960s, they're really kind of modern versions of insurrectionary moments. And really that after effect of 68 drags on for quite a long time. Um, the periods when we haven't got that kind of moment in the recent past, really it becomes again sort of anarchism is that kind of charismatic statement that you almost can't make in the public sphere and that i think is why we're having the problem now mm -hmm. uh, does that make sense no no sure well, well actually why don't you be specific about what you think that statement is the uh, what anymore. statement um well just sort of opposing the entire way in which the dominant regime works right so the logic uh, itself yeah, seeing the entire way the dominant regime works as completely unjustified and as something we should live without and live against, uh, and especially actually doing that following through in practice. 
Um, now, I think what you can still say is you can still say things that are critical of Fordism because Fordism isn't with us anymore. Right. Right. And that's one of the reasons that we now get in academia, for example, an awful lot of stuff criticizing modern reason, an awful lot of stuff criticizing the rigid binaries, the fixed subjectivities that were important parts of Fordism. Hmm. Right. That's no longer threatening to the system. So that is something they can permit. Um, what they don't really allow or you get marginalized, you don't necessarily get repressed, but you get marginalized if you go against the cybernetic logics of control, the idea that everything has to be managed, the idea that everything has to be uh, behaviorally regulated, um, the idea of being on display, being under surveillance, the idea of, uh, you know, this whole thing of people should be accountable, behavior should have consequences. That's a very, very hard idea to challenge, and you'll instantly get stamped on by a great many people for saying things like that, you know, not just by the right wing. And I think the reason for that is because we have seen this shift. You know, Fordism, we have this whole system that is based on modern reason that's got this whole sort of mixture of mass production, mass consumption, um, a core sector with high wages and then systems of discrimination that keep other people in secondary labor markets, right? And an austere social morality that goes with that and a state that is running a national economy. And if you look at the 68 revolt and all of that kind of second wave anarchism uh, and all the other stuff that's coming up at that time, this is all revolt against that structure of Fordism in one way or another. Hmm. We've got the people who are resisting the demand that everybody work and everybody consume by slacking off, dropping out, um, by uh, altered consciousness through psychedelic drugs, which challenges that dominant consensus perception of Fordism. We're seeing wildcat strikes, which are outside the structure of union control in the workplace. We're seeing decolonization, which is a threat to uh, that division into primary and secondary labor markets. Struggles around gender, race, sexuality, disability, again, having to do with either resisting the austere morality or resisting the, the segmentation of labor markets. Struggles against conscription, against schooling, we're seeing the ecological consequences of capitalism becoming increasingly visible. We're seeing things like mad liberation, prison struggles, this whole swathe of struggles against aspects of the Fordist system of, of social control, right? Now, what we then see is, in a way, we actually succeed. In a way, Fordism stops working. And by the 70s, Fordism is no longer working. It can't generate profits. And we see an attempt to either suppress or recuperate the movements that brought down Fordism through what was to become neoliberalism. Um, to recuperate through attempting to bring in the, the idea of agency, right? People are agents, people are responsible for their own lives and they should have freedom and choice. They shouldn't be trapped in this one role all the time. Um, recuperation also later in the form of the third way in the form of things like ecology and gender and so on being brought into sort of the Clinton, the Blair agenda, things like that. Um, and also attempts to suppress it through this real reaction we get from sort of the Pinochets, the Thatchers, the Reagans, um, attempts to, you know, decolonization being reversed, for example, through the debt trap and structural adjustment policies. Uh, so we see this kind of recomposition in which the state no longer runs the national economy. The state is now trying to attract transnational capital flows. The economy is globalized. There's no global regime of regulation of the economy. Um, there's no global state at this stage, at least. 
right? So the states are competing to attract transnational capital to their territory. There's loads more. There's something like nine times as much finance as, as productive capital, right? So if every bank loan that's given, there's an, there's an eight out of nine chance it will never be paid back. Right. It, it is. It's a system that just doesn't work. And it, it works on just keeping people believing that it's working, people keeping people believing, keeping pretending, keeping up appearances, even to the bosses themselves, that these loans will be paid back, that production is going to explode, that we're approaching a new production frontier. Increasingly, since 2008, that kind of hope has frayed. But the system has been keeping itself going based on almost lying to itself and lying to everyone. And we've seen sort of rearrangements of, you know, precarity is one of the terms you'll see flying around. You see rearrangement of the labor market. So really that primary labor market of core workers disappears, becomes more and more like the secondary labor markets. Uh, we see unstable work. We see constant anxiety, performance management. We see a kind of experience of the present. I mean, another of the problems for anarchism is imagining another future in a, a situation where everyone feels trapped in the present. Right. And that's a kind of knock on psychological effect of unstable working hours and constant stress. Uh, and that's a difficulty, not just for anarchism, it's a difficulty for any vision of the future. Now, of course, there's a lot of other things going on around this uh, that are creating problems. Of course, we're seeing this sort of intensified securitization, militarized policing, counterinsurgency measures. But a lot of the control structures are actually based on sort of the system being completely apathetic about who or what you are. Yeah. Uh, the system doesn't care what your desires are. The system doesn't care if you're getting what you need. The system doesn't care what you're thinking. It doesn't care about rational motivation. It doesn't care what your belief system is. What it cares about is what you do, your behavior in the system's terms. It views you just as an outer node in a system of nodes in which it tries to nudge or pressure each of those nodes through some combination of market incentives, deterrence, information, uh, shifts in the opportunity structure. And it generally works to control and block opportunity structures to do things it doesn't want people doing and to facilitate and sometimes hyper facilitate doing things that it wants you to do while keeping up the illusion that actually you're freely choosing and what happens is the result of your agency. And it's, all, it's, it's interesting it's like, to compare sort of what we'll call second wave ideas and, and, and yeah. you know, what we've each extracted from our readings of the SI, because, of course, yeah. in North America, by and large, we did not take an economicist approach in any way, shape or form to the SI. You know, if you, if you look at the history of Anarchy, a Journal of Desire Armed, which really tried to, to grab the SI, you know, it's a cultural magazine, much more than it's an economic magazine. And one of yeah. the things we often say in the U.S. when we're referring to anarchists from the U.K. is that by and large, anarchists from the U.K. are still more or less class struggle anarchists. Yeah. They still very much more identify with, um, we'll just say, uh, an analysis of capitalism that perhaps has to do mm -hmm. with their proximity to London, which, you know, more than New York, is still the bankers of the world. Yeah. Yeah, although yeah, the traditional working class, I mean, Britain always had a left that was strongly focused on the Labour Party, I think more than anywhere else, the Labour Party and the trade unions. Uh, Britain had a very large, very strong working class that made up about half the population. 
and uh, and Britain has an electoral system that meant that the Labour Party had such a determinate role on the left. And this pulled a lot of left-wing politics towards a class struggle pole uh, at a point where that was really fraying everywhere else. Um, but we have seen the same kind of decomposition of the working class in Britain that we have other places. And your average anarchist nowadays in Britain is not uh, working in a factory or anything like that. They're either unemployed in precarious labour uh, or working in these kinds of unstable new economy sectors. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of, and I think in some ways we saw more of the uh, post-left and situationist stuff in the 90s, early 2000s around the anti-capitalist movement and things like Reclaim the Streets. There was a huge eco-anarchist scene here in the 90s, lots of protest camps. That was really counterposed to the class struggle stuff. But that's gone into severe decline because of intense securitization from the mid-2000s onwards. We've seen a resurgence of class struggle, also a lot of identity politics. Actually, a lot of the people who used to be into post-left stuff here are now into identity politics. That seems to be the way it's gone. But we've also seen with Corbyn, who's on the left of the Labour Party, doing so well. We've seen lots of anarchists moving into support for Corbyn and even actually joining the Labour Party because it looks like it provides hope to oppose capitalism. And what's going to happen if and when Corbyn either sells out or is defeated, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that at the moment is kind of the direction with that. Uh, anyway, the way I think it overlaps kind of the economics and the cultural side is really a lot of these mechanisms of control that are built into the neoliberal economy or the post-Fordist economy are also built into the way in which the rest of society is now organized. So one of the features of neoliberalism is it no longer allows... I mean, you used to have spheres like education was officially not part of the market. In practice, of course, it was training people to be cogs in the machine. But in theory, it was meant to be about, you know, teaching people important values that are important in themselves or facts that are important in themselves. Whereas nowadays, it's explicitly about making cogs in the machine. And they more or less admit that's what they're doing. Right. Mm. It's the same in loads of spheres. Um, I think probably the way things have shifted. I mean, I would say modern reason is already, modern reason is already dead, but its ghost is still with us. Uh, the legitimation systems, most of the public still believe that modern reason exists. Most of the public still believe that they're individual subjects and they're, they're, they're in, a, uh, um, in a situation very like that of classical capitalism or um, these previous stages. But what's actually happening behind the scenes is the elite have given up on the idea of modern reason. They now believe that we're in, a, uh, we're in a, 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 an insolubly chaotic world, which is a network and which is a, a, a chaotic flux. And in that setting, what they try to do is exercise control through, not through trying to capture and guide all the forces, but through basically trying to, uh, to steer through them. I mean, the idea of cybernetics originally comes from the idea of a steersman guiding a boat through a storm, right? Um, so yeah, it isn't let, somebody who... Let me, let yeah, me interrupt for, again for a second. There mm -hmm. is actually an alter story of cybernetics. And mm -hmm. I, I want to mention this because I think it does start to give a, an insertion point for us to talk yeah. about where anarchism is or, or is not in yeah. terms of this conversation. So this ultra story of cybernetics was basically at the same time that the military in the 50s and 60s were starting to think about uh, the topics that we now call cybernetics. There was also sort of a set of people who were early computer programmer type people, mm -hmm. people who were trying to leverage computers to do things like yeah. music. 
Uh, there was yeah. an art, there was an artistic scene that was also studying cybern cybernetics. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to remember the guy's name, but I do know his project because his project actually, actually existed in Champaign-Urbana, uh, Illinois, which is here in the U.S. And uh, the school or, or the project, this guy who was, who was mm -hmm. an early figure in cybernetics, but not on the military side of it, <clears throat> the project ended up being called the School for Designing a Society. And it actually articulated itself as being a school that used cybernetic principles to basically create a new type of student or, you know, to, to sort of approach the world from this from this different direction. And uh, so they both ended up being a performance group that would travel during the summers yeah. and and something like a free school during the year. And I got I got to visit it for about a week, and it's really worth checking out, just because it sort of tells yeah. this ultra story, and yeah. of course ended up being um, a sort of umbrella that that covered everything from permaculture to poetry to, you know, sort of some classical texts that that are in our family. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, that there were people from the start very much who were using it in uh, in an anarchist way. I mean, Gregory Bateson is one of the founders of uh, of cybernetics. So he is also um, a deep ecologist, one of the founders of deep ecology. Right. Um, cybernetics is used in the analysis of ecosystems. It's not necessarily a control system in that context. There's a lot of similarities there with post-structuralism as well which was very radical in its day, even though it's sort of been recuperated to some degree. And some of the critical pedagogy, so, you know, Ivan Illich, Postman and Weingartner is partly draw, drawing on cybernetics. But I think it becomes reactionary when and only when it's kind of used as a, uh, a theory of control, a method of control. Um, when basically the position of the person analyzing cybernetic systems is how does one control, quote unquote, behavior within these systems, right? And I, I think the capitalists and the statists are trying to do this in such a way as to try to turn capitalism into a self-sustaining, self-regulating system, try and prevent capitalism uh, breaking down because it's never really recovered from the 73 crisis in some ways. Right. It's never rebuilt to the strength it had before. It's trying just to keep itself, to stop change, to freeze society at the point it's at. It's very like in some ways Tokugawa Japan when the, the ruling class were getting so afraid of the forces of capitalism that they, they produced this form of feudalism that was so locked down as to prevent social change. That's really what they're trying to do now, except in order to do that, you have to tweak, you have to periodically reform capitalism, you have to repress or recuperate anything new very quickly. Right now, this and you also need like lots and lots of information in order to map profile view patterns, catch resistance very quickly and head it off before it happens. Um, it completely ignores this whole form of government government. It not only is ignoring desire and the inner self and emotional motives and subjective meaning. It's also denying kind of rational motives and ideological motives. It isn't trying to be meaningful. It isn't trying to appeal to people as rational subjects. It isn't trying to appeal to people as desiring subjects. It's trying to nudge and control how people act through the environment they're put in by restricting their options, right? Used, restricting used, and enabling. You used a couple yeah. of terms that really remind me of the... Um... The guy that did Century of the Self, uh, Adam Curtis. Um, yeah. Uh, how influential has he been 
in the in in your context um i don't think he's used that much within anarchism i think he's had some influence on stuff that's going on on the labor left and uh left recomposition more broadly um he he takes the line very much that the 60s revolution led to um led to neoliberalism and i think that's also a position that's taken you know people like boltanski and chiapello in academia take the same kind of position uh, it's quite commonly argued on sort of what you might call the authoritarian left uh, as a critique of post left and and things like that hmm. um but yeah it's ultimately problematic i mean we're looking at the relationship between 68 and neoliberalism we're looking at a process of recuperation in my view yeah. we're not looking at sort of the, yeah sorry um i mean yeah a invisible committee talk about this in the uh, I think it's in two our friends, but it's the piece called uh, "Fuck Off Google," and it's yeah. like I think it's a sub piece of that, and it's like yeah, they talk about the the bosses actually are already Buddhist or Taoist. They don't think of us as individuals anymore. They think of us as nodes. But in a way, this is sort of just a new, you know, in Fordism, they think of us as cogs. They think of us as like part of a factory, whereas now they think of us like computers. So it's a bit the same thing. But we're living in a world that they're producing from these cybernetic blueprints and then they're blocking our opportunities in such a way as to make it very difficult to live by adding not fit into their boxes, to not fall for this trap of misrecognizing agents in the system, uh, imagining that it's actually agency outside the system, of not confusing with reality. Right? And there's a load of subjective knock-on effects being nudged, being controlled, being behaviorally modified and uh, being subjected to precarious work or precarious non-work. Uh, anxious all the time that people lose their sense of subjective meaning, uh, rational and emotional, that people sometimes even sort of lose the ability to feel. Um, and political struggle gets constantly forced back into these models because people are so used to thinking inside a cybernetic system. Um, this feeling of being a person who is constantly judged, who has no value in them in themselves in the eyes of others, who has to compete to survive, who has to uh, manage their appearance, um, people being easily triggered by anything that reminds them of how disposable they are. Uh, the idea that the way to engage with other people is by nudging and controlling and behaviorally modifying has all been brought into all the forms, all the countercultures. It's there in identity politics. It's there in the contemporary left. It's there in the third way. It's there in liberal theory as it is today. It's there in post-structuralism in the universities. It's so hard now to be outside that mm -hmm. um, straight away. And, the chances of sort of being profiled as an extremist or whatever, if you are doing something outside that, are very, very high, especially if you're seen publicly. I mean, the other things you can do from a Scottian point of view, disguise the agent or disguise the message, right? And that is still going on as well. But this is why we have so little anarchism that is really anarchism nowadays, that is really about living authentically, living by our desires. Um, because living that kind of anarchism, you come up instantly against the control systems. I mean, try organizing a free festival without 
jumping through police hoops, for example, straight away the repressive machinery is coming in, looking for who organised it, tracking you through social media, possibly shutting the event down preemptively, possibly going after the people who organised it afterwards. Right, that's the kind of problem. That is why we're not getting these authentic spaces now. Right now, an anarchist, obviously, in this context, it's not so much. I mean, in Fordism, an anarchist is is a refuser of work of conformity in these kinds of top-down systems. Today, really, an, an anarchist is somebody who can't be nudged, somebody who can't be controlled through opportunity structures. But that is something that it's very difficult to be because the system will then basically deny you all conditions of life and uh, worst case scenario, you end up in solitary confinement or whatever. Um, and because this is being immediately stamped, I mean, I think we see this whole pattern as well because everyone is still focused on tearing down modern reason, tearing down Fordism, tearing down the systems of discrimination that were built into Fordism that we've still got the aftershadows of, um, a lot of people see cybernetics as a tool they can use for that, misrecognize it as something progressive when, I mean, of course, from a Marxist point of view, it is progressive because it's the next stage of capitalism, but actually it's not. It's just like the latest stage, the intensification of, of, of um, the intensification of the destruction and control of everyday life by the mega machine. Uh, now, I've got a few ideas about how we might uh, get out of that. I don't have anything all that definite because obviously we've not got sort of next stage of anarchism yet. Uh, I think neoliberalism is already entering into crisis. Um, the cybernetic control systems are still being refined and rolled out. If you look at some of what's happening in China at the moment, it's absolutely terrifying. The social credit systems where people get uh, ranked based on uh, their performance in a whole range of spheres uh, how they're spotted by algorithms, how they're profiled, what they're seen doing in public space, who they associate with on social media, what their social credit score is. This affects all kinds of aspects of their life, uh, ranging from whether you get um, whether you can get into the top universities or join the ruling party through to whether you get sent to the gulag. You know, it's really is that kind of level of integrated control. That may well be what's coming everywhere. Um, that is the real danger we're up against now. And of course, this is going on at the same time that ecological destruction is just getting worse and worse and worse. We are seeing climate change happening in real time. We are seeing ice caps melting. We are seeing changes in the environments we're living in. It's something like 60% of, uh, of mammal species have gone extinct since 1970. This is not in the history of civilization. This is since the beginning of neoliberalism. Right. Now, what what can we do about it? Well, what we've been seeing since neoliberalism, in fact, since before neoliberalism started, the system isn't providing people with meaning anymore. So people are finding meaning in everyday life. Right. They're finding meaning in affinity groups, in bands, in neo tribes, in, in social networks that is still going on. It's going on even within the cybernetic systems, you know, the little groups of people who know each other on social media and so on. It's always got an, a, a structure similar to anarchism, but it doesn't always have an anarchist ideology. In fact, it can have a, an outright reactionary ideology. But this, I think, is the emerging social form. The emerging social form is that people will live in bands, neo-tribes, networks, uh, possibly small groups with small group systems of meaning. 
but the system is trying like tokugawa japan trying to stop capitalism right the system is trying to stop that from becoming the dominant social model by conceding as little as possible hmm. um now the, this this sorry. is you're essentially arguing for like a a bola bola or a taz sort of an yeah okay go on uh i think that was i think we very nearly got there 68 and the 70s we very nearly got there even in the 90s we still like got a lot of that going on the system has tried to stop it through these cybernetic control models but it's still like that is just like this wall they've put around us that the moment a hole is created in the wall things open up um and the system is in many ways fraying but at the same time the degree of control is just unprecedented now, there's a, there's a few ways in which this could go. One of them is the system somehow recomposes, finds a new way to create profits. We have something like a recomposition, like another type of Fordism, like a neo-Fordism, in which case we'll see a recomposition. We'll see another 68 in probably about 20 years, at which point we'll see a rebirth of anarchism as a rejection of whatever it is that comes into being, Right. Another possibility is capitalism has just got to the end of its potential to keep reinventing itself. It's just this is why it's trying to freeze everything. This is why it's taking this reaction reform. Mm. And actually, the next stage is going to be there's a guy called Sing Chu who's written a book, uh, Recurring Dark Ages, that when a civilization or a society gets to its the, the limits of its ecological capacity, when it can no longer sustain itself by exploiting its environment. A lot of the trends of social development go into reverse. You see ruralization instead of urbanization. You see um, population decline instead of population growth. You see dispersal of knowledge instead of centralization of knowledge, all these kinds of tendencies. Um, we see that happening, for example, at the end of uh, the end of the ancient Greek period, at the end of ancient Rome, at the beginning of the Middle Ages in Europe. Um, we see at various other parts of the world at, at the end of periods when uh, when a, a strong state or civilization is coming to an end. We could be seeing a global scale, in which case we'll be seeing massive potential for autonomous zones opening up. Uh, but at the same time, possibly quite big survival problems. You know, we're talking about a context of the system falling apart and people trying to survive it. Uh, one of the other trends we're seeing is there's growing numbers of people who are not included in the capitalist economy because capitalism is destroying jobs or destroying livelihoods more quickly than it can create them. Right? Capitalism is no longer creating lots of jobs in factories. Um, it's actually laying people off in factories. It's still creating some jobs some places, but it's still just, it's still driving peasants off the land. It's still running down industries, mechanizing industries so they employ fewer people. And there's more and more and more people who are not employed. And it's really this population who are the stratum of revolt at the moment, whether it's the Arab Spring, whether it's the Greek Revolt 2008, uh, whether it's the movements in Latin America, now, unfortunately, again, the the excluded stratum don't always go in progressive directions, right? They they sometimes go towards fascism. They sometimes go just into gangs, which are just about sort of looking after your your affinity group and nothing else. Uh, we're also seeing this process of world system theory. I've seen it described as forced delinking. Uh, Hacking Bay calls it social triage. We see sort of whole sectors, whole geographical areas, whole social strata from the world economy because not because they've decided to drop out but because the world uh, the world economy doesn't want to connect to them it doesn't see any profit 
So you'll see huge areas in Africa that it's just like formal capitalism has no presence. You know, there's less than 5% of the population employed in the former sector, formal sector economy. And that is in a handful of production hubs that are just cut off and surrounded by barbed wire. Well, let's, um, let's bring this conversation back to the anarchist space, which, yep. you know, as bleak as it is, it almost mm. doesn't sound as bleak as the world that you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so one place where I sort of see a kind of health meter is in the number and the depths and the quality of the conversations that happen on anarchist news. Yeah. And, and recently there's been a sort of uptick, at least from, from, for, from a quality perspective. Yeah. There are better conversations happening there than there have been in years. Why do you think that is? Uh, it it may be uh, these kinds of tides rise and fall every every decade or so. We get a resurgence. We get people processing, relearning the lessons of the previous stage. It may be because there's a revival of activism again. I mean, we're heading for sort of there was a big movement around about 99 to 2001, another big movement, 2011. And we're about the point of another one appearing. Um, so it may be foreshadowings of that um, really is quite hard to say because um, movements seem to come and go, seem to revive and, and reassess themselves uh, without there necessarily being observable patterns to it. But uh, I think there is a there's an attempt now, partly because things are getting more desperate. Um, I think uh, um, struggle in some ways is reviving, and we're going to see questions being asked again, perhaps that that are not being asked at the moment. Um, I think some of the things that we need to think about strategically in terms of, I mean, yeah, what I've been talking about is fairly bleak, but. At the same time, it's something that offers this possibility that there is going to be space there for autonomous zones, and there's probably space there now for autonomous zones. I think the big difficulty is that cybernetics will suppress or capture what it can see. So a lot of the good stuff that's going on is things that aren't being seen. And by definition, the things that aren't being seen aren't getting on the internet, aren't, aren't reaching us. Hmm. But that doesn't mean they're not happening. There may be a lot more happening than we see. Right. So it may be the way forward is more about sort of invisibility. Um, but I think we need to be thinking seriously at this point. The no outside thing is uh, is so, so uh, debilitating. On the one hand, I think we need to start thinking again about positive utopian proposals, positive ideas of how society can be organized, things like Bolo Bolo. You know, we need to be putting ideas out there that here's another way that society could be organized, because at the moment, that's really something that people lack. You know, I think we're past the point now of people saying, yeah, we need to think outside modern reason or we need to think about outside neoliberalism. People are already at the point where they've had enough of neoliberalism, but it just seems so pervasive that they can't think outside it. And that's also an emotional thing, right? If you haven't got those experiences of autonomous zones. If you haven't had an experience of either of a, a, a community outside capitalism or of a, a, a demonstration which is, has reclaimed space from capitalism for some significant time, it's really very hard to envision anything else. And I think also we need to be thinking very much about the issue of, uh, the issue of territory. Uh, I think we need to be thinking about the issue of are there ways that we can create anarchist territories that are outside state control that are outside this whole cybernetic regime of control because once you've got that 
that whole there is no alternative thing starts to break down. Um, and, and once you've got your own territory, you've got things like um, you've got things like Internet capability that's that's not as easy for the state to kind of seize your servers and so on. You've got uh, places where um, you've got the possibility of, of actions being taken that the state can't chase you down for. I think that's really what we need to be thinking about, because some of the other movements, you know, the gangs and some of the right wing movements do have that. And that's partly what's sustaining them in this period is is the fact that they have they have territories. Now I'm not sure how we uh, how we could do it in practice, but I think it may be to do with sort of finding and making the most of those spaces that capital is delinking from, uh, because that's also where where the influence is going to be weaker and the control is going to be weaker. I, I can imagine a situation where this global excluded stratum, most of whom have probably never heard of anarchism at this point. In potentially, they could be very attracted to a type of post-left or desire-based or autonomous anarchism. Uh, we're already seeing that to a degree in Greece, but I think that needs to be promoted to those parts of the world where capitalism is not as strong and where at the moment it's it's not anarchist groups. It's, it's often quite reactionary groups that are forming the connections. Mm. When we've got that, we will start seeing autonomous zones appearing in areas where capitalism doesn't have that much control to begin with. And the problem may well, you know, that territory problem may well solve itself. Uh, that's my thought at the moment of probably what the way forward is. Um, but yeah, also invisibility helps in these kinds of settings, um, having inspiring visions of utopia helps in this kind of setting. It's it's unhelpful if you're in the kind of setting where you've got like lots of rigid parties about that will take it up and turn it into an agenda and it gets recuperated. But it's very important when people are caught in this kind of presentism. And we really need to be building this on the level of life. You know, I remember a lot more from 90s, 2000s, people were doing things that are just like everyday anarchism in everyday life. You know, people had got, uh, maybe they were living in an urban area, but they were growing some of their own food, or maybe they were doing things like skipping and food, not bombs and all this kind of thing. Maybe people were squatting, or if they weren't squatting themselves, there might be a squatted social center they were using. You know, all that kind of thing helps build an experience of another world. You know, even if you're spending 90% of your life in, a, in, in this kind of cybernetically controlled neoliberal capitalist status world, just spending 10% in another world lets you know that there is another world. And it's actually there were places in the 80s where people were living most of their lives outside of capitalism, you know, but it's even just a bit is enough to break. There is no alternative. It's enough to create that sense that there is something else and break that spell that that cybernetic capitalism has got on people. Do you, do, do you see what I mean? Sure. You'll, you'll be amused to know that they just opened in, in an, uh, like an amusement park in Utah, of all places, called mm. Never, Nevermore, that's halfway yeah. between Tolkien and Game of Thrones, where you can go wow. there and, and, and complete quests and, and capture yeah. gold and, and all the rest. Pretty yeah. In, in, in the Mormon capital of America. Yeah, kind of exactly. ironic, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, a way it will sort of eat up anything. Um, I have noticed over time, by the way, the fantasy genre itself has very much shifted and we've seen utopia disappear. 
In fact, actually, Bolo Bolo is one of the most recent utopias that I can think of. There's been very few written since the early 90s. We have seen a lot of dystopias. We've seen a lot of what's called grimdark in the genre. A lot of worlds that are just unremittingly dystopian. Um, But yeah, utopian, not so much. You might Uh, want to keep your eye out. So there's this brand new magazine that comes out of the U.S. side of the EndNotes uh, experience called Commune. And they just did a Kickstarter where they've made uh, about $30,000 so far. And as part of, of, of their project, they're getting some pretty big name authors and paying them. And, and the article just came out by Kim Stanley Robinson about this utopia dystopia uh, uh, tension. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're seeing a recomposition of this kind of thing. It's coming more from the left than uh, than anarchism or the people who used to be in the eco movement or the people who still are in the eco movement. But it's uh, we are seeing here this kind of acid communism, acid Corbynism kind of stuff appearing about sort of imagining other worlds and re refinding the ability to um uh, to desire things that aren't part of capitalism, so it evidently is something that's uh, that's reappearing, and yeah, let's hope that's a that's a shadow of more of this to come. So, I mean, I think this was really what '68 did was do this with Fordism. You know, up until then we'd got the utopias, but they were Fordist utopias, and Fordism was the frame everyone thought in. And I think that's what we have now, except it's like with neoliberalism and cybernetics. It's like everything's within that frame. Um, utopias the dystopias we can think of are all within that frame it's quite hard to imagine a cybernetic utopia to tell the truth but it's the ability to think outside that frame that that brings something new into being that that makes it possible to have life lived authentically life lived by desires Um. yeah that's that is interesting i'm I'm thinking about the the Whole Earth catalog, which, of course, um, another Adam Curtis touchstone, but it's actually from around where I live right now, uh, which is this idea of using computers to sort of free your time to be a person that can live autonomously and can live outside of constraint. But, you know, by and large, these people who had these ideas in the 70s are the people who founded what we know of Mm. the Silicon Valley today. Yeah. Um, it's the same kind of issue that occurred, you know, right back in the days of Marx. We had that talk about, you know, indus- modern industry is creating the potential for a leisure society where nobody has to work or people are working one hour a week or whatever. Um, social organization tends to militate against that. Um, and of course, the argument then is, is it just the social organization or is it built into the structure of the technology, right? Sure. Um, I do think we will probably see... Uh, I mean, again, it's it's hard to see what forms it will take, but I think we will see things emerging, which is somewhere between sort of pro-tech and, uh, and primitivism that are using new technologies in a way that disrupts cybernetic systems. Um, so we will see, uh, we will see, for example, the, the creation of uh, of spaces which where technology is introduced that makes it difficult to use any kind of technology in those spaces uh we will see sort of counter uses of technologies like uh, drones and 3d printers and so on as part of a kind of autonomous skill set um we will see um 
communes that are living apart from the dominant world that are maybe run on a low tech basis, but that are also hubs for um, uh, hubs for server sites, uh, hubs for um, Bitcoin farms and things like this. Um, it's the sort of thing I could imagine happening. It's sort of maybe if we have another 68 that this will be what a lot of the stuff looks like because we've already seen that to some degree with the internet. You know, you've got people who are actually uh, quite anti-tech who will use certain bits of the internet or use it for certain things. Um, I think a lot of the technologies that are coming out now, are, I mean, really what they're being designed for is this whole cybernetic control project. But whether they are irredeemably tied into that or whether they're actually in a sense disruptive of that is very very hard to foretell well, i'm not uh, sure about very hard but <laughs> but i hear you i hear you yeah quite hard um i mean one of the issues is what will happen if they lose control of artificial intelligence you know if a computer once starts thinking for itself outside of what the program puts there what will it want what will it decide we literally don't know Maybe the computer will decide actually people ought to be living authentic lives. Um, that, that's, that's one of the, the problems that can come up. Um, another problem that comes up is that they can't control their own systems. There's just too much data to process. Uh, the processing systems start backfiring. There's a whole load of things that can go wrong. Um, but yeah, um, I'm still, uh, I mean, in general, the current context makes me very pessimistic because there just seems to be so much. Um, the, the cybernetic system is so entrenched now and is deepening. And at the same time, the political currents are either um, so extreme right or so, um, so cybernetic left that just seeing a progressive alternative anywhere is difficult, but there is the potential there. I can see sort of lines of flight that may be beginning to form, that may be uh, forming. As I said, I think there is still this tendency that, yeah, um, forms of power based on modern reason are collapsing, that the state is losing its its loyalty base, its meaning base to um, uh, to neo-tribes and, and, uh, and bands and so on, that... Um, the system is unable to integrate increasing, increasingly large parts of its territory and population. The, these are obviously things that are signs of potentially, uh, you know, potential for good things in the future, even if it's hard to foresee now. But I think in a way, the, the despair and the fact that we can't foresee any of these things happening is itself a result of that, you know, the, 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 the emotional effects of, of, uh, the emotional effects of neoliberalism, precarious work and cybernetics, this kind of feeling of being in an eternal present, this feeling that neoliberalism's here to stay and dominates everything, whether we like it or not, this feeling that um, everything we do is being nudged and controlled, that kind of thing kind of restricts the ability to see that potential. But that may actually be a type of trance state that the system and its technologies are inducing. It may be that things aren't actually that bleak. Yeah, I but think it then... the, the seeming integration of AI, drones, and neoliberalism, I think that that yeah. is largely a perception issue yeah. rather than a true issue. 
Mm. But but I say that as someone who's, you know, notably pessimistic, <laughs> because mm. for me, you know, I, I frame the, these conversations not in terms of the techniques, but in terms mm. of uh, what is social change? What does it mean? And how yeah. how does it get framed? And all of those things seem to be uh, convincingly depressing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Well, so, okay. So just uh, at this point, let's say last words. If you were going to okay. talk about where you think anarchism is at for the next year. So you, mm-hmm. you were sort of saying that uh, cross your fingers, there may be another 68 and 20 years. What do you mm-hmm. think is going to happen between now and 2020? From the perspective of a self-described anarchist space, um, very hard to know when the. I mean, there's so many variables in terms of will there be an economic crash or not? Will there be a war or not? Um, it does seem. It does seem like there are strong signs that many countries are starting to decouple from the American dollar. Yeah, seems like a big, a big uh, crash looming. Yeah, there's a lot of issues here in Europe um, with Britain pulling out of the EU that has knock on consequences for the whole of Europe. Yeah. Uh, the Greek crisis is sort of resolved, but not really. Um, there's other problems going on, you know, with the rise of the far right in Europe. There's anti-EU governments in several EU member states. So there is certainly a lot of instability. And it really is just a question of how long can this sort of neoliberal um global elite kind of keep the lid on things so that they don't get to crisis point um i think they've been keeping the lid on since 2008 we're actually overdue a big financial crash and i don't know quite how they've managed to head it off um i think we're going to see anarchist movements under siege um the movements that are more out in the open um Perhaps not so much in America, because I think in America there's this whole complication that there is the split between, um, you know, the Trump fan club and everyone else. And anarchists, in a sense, benefit from being part of everyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas somewhere like Brazil under Bolsonaro, I'm expecting really intense repression, but we'll see if that actually happens or not. But things are getting, there's a lot of countries, you know, Russia is really cracking down. Europe is getting a lot worse. Germany, for example, things are getting a lot, lot darker than they were. Uh, France um, under Macron has really been, um, really been the the state flexing its muscle against social movements. Um, I think we will probably see those trends continue, but fairly slowly. Um, But if we see a big crisis, then things will come to a head. Now, whether the big crisis will just lead to repression being ratcheted up and full scale social credit regimes everywhere, or whether it will lead to a bigger upsurge, bigger social movements that are hard to repress, I don't know. Um, We will probably have to wait and see. What I think is a positive sign, I think the alt-right is losing some of its steam. And with the alt-right losing some of its steam, there's a possibility that when the crisis happens, people will move more towards, um, if not anarchism, then at least something less objectionable than the alt-right. Um, I think there is a, um, a, a risk of, um, I mean, the whole situation between 
there's an issue between America and Russia. There's an issue between America and China. And again, you never know when they're going to come to a head. Um, I don't think anyone wants uh, either a war or a cold war. I think it's more likely to be a cold war or a proxy war than an actual full scale war if it happens anyway. Um, but definitely China and Russia are looking to break down American unipolar hegemony and American unipolar hegemony is getting weaker and weaker and, and Trump is stepping back from multilateral commitments. So that's creating openings for sort of American global power to fray even more. Um, but again, we will see. It's a lot easier to say what direction the tendencies are going in than it is to say sort of how quickly um, because sort of it, it previously, you know, something bad can happen. There's knock on effects. It's very fast. And that can be kind of the coming to a head of things that have been going on for years, decades. Um, well, thank yeah. you very much for this conversation. Yeah, well, thank you for, uh, for having me on. I wouldn't call um, it uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, political discussions nowadays never are, are they? No, indeed. Um,